0: There's no doubt in my mind that learning or smart machines are helping us in our daily lives and helping us to perform work that frees us to think more transformationally and that allows us to move forward in really fascinating ways
1: you're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast. As we start 2017, tech news is all about platforms.
2: That's right. It's clear we're living through what Sangeet Chowdhury and his co-authors call a platform revolution. I had the chance to visit with Sangeet recently, and he notes that we live, learn, work, shop on platforms, and that most uh, of the biggest companies in America run platforms.
1: And I think you often note this, but all of these platforms have or are working on adding these elements of artificial intelligence.
2: That may be the most visible and important tech trend from last year. It uh, it became obvious in the popular press in the fall of 2016 that our artificial intelligence is everywhere. It's it's in uh, our shopping apps, in uh, our transportation apps. It's showing up increasingly in our home apps, it's in the apps that we use to communicate with each other. For all those reasons, we think it's an important time to hashtag ask about AI, the name of uh, a new series on getting smart.
1: And you recently talked to Stephen Laster, Chief Digital Officer at McGraw Hill Education, right?
2: So Laster is a really interesting guy. He was the CIO at Harvard for a number of years before joining McGraw in. 2012.
1: And as part of that conversation, you guys dive into some interesting things about the change in technology um, and what that means for schools. So let's listen in on that conversation.
3: Today, we're talking to Stephen Lasser, the Chief Digital Officer at McGraw Hill Education. Stephen, welcome to the Getting Smart Podcast.
0: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you today.
3: Stephen, it's been an interesting year. I was at a conference over the weekend with Sangeet Chowdhury, one of the authors of Platform Revolution, and he he notes that we seem to live and work and shop uh, increasingly on platforms. Uh, wh- what's your take?
0: So I think we do live in a platform or in an interconnected world. Um you know and i think now more than ever that interconnectedness helps us to do really um great things in our personal and professional lives and i think if if you imagine that world and you start to apply it to education you know it's i think from a technology perspective it was well articulated In the EDUCAUSE study that Malcolm Brown led when he was looking at next generation learning environments, I think that's a seminal piece over the past year or so for all of us. And I think, you know, the connectivity in education is not just about technology. That's an important piece, but a small piece. But I think it's really about how we broaden and open up sort of the definition of the walls of the classroom. So that today's student is truly a global student, uh, given the the world that we live in.
3: Another big trend for 2016 was the rise of artificial intelligence. It it seems to be um, have pervaded most sectors of life, and uh, the it seemed to hit the popular press in the second half of. Uh, 2016, what what do you think are the implications for education?
0: So I think if we look at the hype versus the reality of artificial intelligence, um, there's no doubt in my mind that learning or smart machines are helping us in our daily lives and helping us to perform work that frees us to think more transformationally and that allows us to move forward in really fascinating ways Um, and I think if we peel that down more deeply and we think about education uh, it still very much needs to be built on a foundation of curation on a foundation of understanding a knowledge domain and of an understanding of how teaching and learning happens and so it's not In my estimation that the opportunity exists for machines to take over the role of teaching. But there are certainly really powerful places where algorithms, where machine learning can help create confident students, can help make the, help the student make the most of the time they put into studying and learning, and can provide additional insights and context for really uh, engaged teachers to take the connected moments and make them more valuable. So I think uh, whether it's pure machine learning or whether it's this notion of being able to, which I believe deeply in, creating learning experiences that are more tailored to the needs of the students, I think we're at a really great moment in time where technology helps us do that, Provided we're willing to make the investments in appropriate curation and appropriate uh, you know, marking up an understanding of learning and chunking of learning so that the use of the machine is authentic uh, to the ultimate outcome, which is making allowing teachers to be master teachers and allowing students to be confident learners.
3: So you've alluded to personalized learning. It it does seem that we're in the early innings of uh, of personalized learning what what do you think will make it better over the coming decade?
0: So I believe and you know I've spent a career believing in notions of uh, iterations fast fails, fast learnings, make it good, make it great make or make it better, make it great. so I think personalized learning has already demonstrated that it can be a very um, powerful paradigm for today's classroom. And so what do I mean by that? I think the very notion that you can take curated learning objects, that you can have learning objects today that are able to report back things like student confidence when they engaged with it, uh, things like consci- unconscious competence, and report back how successful the student was with the learning objectives and goals for the learning object. The fact that we can take and, and harvest that information and then give it to both student and educator in ways that allow instruction uh, to change on behalf of a student or a group of students with similar or different needs. I think that's at the essence, that's personalized learning to me. Mm-hmm. And so the fact that we're able to if you think about that K-12 or higher ed classroom, but if you think about K-12 for a moment, when in essence, if you look at it, that teacher has about six minutes per day per child. Uh, if we're able to use information so for a small breakout, if in the upper grades we're able to use the information so that when the student goes home at night to do homework, it's uh, more effective and efficient time on task. Um, I think that's super powerful and the results demonstrate in that world that you get a more engaged and a more um, efficient learner, which I think is wonderful. So I think it it is here. I think use smartly. It is powerful in terms of tailoring the day, the week, the hour. Um, I think you have to be careful not to think it's a panacea. It's one of many tools in the toolkit, and I think it continues uh Have more meaningful and stronger impacts um, in the lives of students and teachers. Stephen,
3: one uh, good uh, good news uh, is that by 2016, um, most schools are pretty well connected. The broadband improved dramatically in the last few years, and with low-cost devices, uh, most schools are approaching one-to-one. Many students are bringing devices to school. And so if we think about, um, take middle grade math for example, most students are getting a lot more feedback in middle grade math. They're getting some feedback from a teacher, some from an adaptive learning app. Uh, They might go home and and use uh, Khan Academy. Um, But it's frustrating that none of that uh, feedback Integrates easily. How do you think we can solve that problem?
0: Yeah, and I, th- I think you've really hit on a um, an important point that is our next step in maturity. So, if we think back by way of analogy to very early email, say in the nineties, um, you might have been on CompuServe, I might have been on CC Mail, if you can remember those names from way back when. Right. And the truth, right. the truth is, when they first came out, we couldn't send each other mail, right? Because we're a different right. providers. Right. That was pretty frustrating. And then in the next evolution, some smart companies came up with these things called email gateways. And if you bought into a gateway, all of a sudden it could be transformed. And for better or for worse, we could send each other email. And then over time, there was a specification developed... From vendors implemented the specification, and truly, I'm not sure if it's for better or for worse today. We can all send each other email regardless of carrier, and we take that for granted. And so email, you're probably sitting with a few hundred unread emails in your inbox as we speak. I know, I sure am. But the yeah. point is the style tone.
1: You're listening to the Getting Smart podcast, and Tom and Steven Laster are talking about dial tone. Megan, do you even remember what dial tone is? Well, I, I thought it meant something else when I first heard it, to be totally honest. And I had to really think back that it's just right. meant remember by like a old phone dial tone.
2: Where you'd pick it up and listen for the dial tone yeah. and know you were connected. Yeah. So the dial tone was important because it told you that you were connected to other phone systems. And in the early days, one phone system couldn't talk to another it was like email systems where you were on a captive email system and you could only talk to people on that same email system.
1: So that's the part that I don't necessarily understand because I didn't live through that piece. So dial tone was always part of my phone experience. What do you mean couldn't talk like what do you mean what did that look like before this?
2: So the corollary in schools today is that kids are getting lots of feedback from lots of different apps. They'll take um iReady assessment during the day and get feedback, and then they'll get feedback from their teacher. They might go home and do a Khan Academy exercise and get feedback, but none of those data points talk to each other. And so the teacher and the student can't use all that combined data to help inform learning and to make mastery judgments about student progress. But in the very near future, I think we're going to see a couple different ways to combine that data so that parents, teachers, and kids have a really... Current answer to the question, How is Johnny doing?
1: That's wonderful. And this is something that we're going to be really working on and exploring in 2017. So, to stay informed and be part of that conversation, head to gettingsmart.com or follow along on Twitter. Now, back to Tom and Stephen as they discuss the uh, powerful changes in technology so far.
0: And so, I think what you've hit on is truly. Important for the next couple of years is to really get interoperability in EdTech to the point where it feels like dial tone. And I think the work of IMS Global, uh, by way of example, is central to driving that success. But things like identity, things like rostering, things such as me being able to assemble a collection of learning tools that are right for my pedagogy and my particular students, And then round-tripping it with me as educator being able to see both interaction information as well as sort of grade or outcome information. And being able to have that in ways that are digestible so that when I walk into school in the morning, I've got a quick glimpse of the state of my students. We are so close to being able to do that. And I think it's incumbent on us all focusing on interoperability as it is a major area of activity in seventeen and eighteen to get there
3: right so you That's talked about integration, but you also talked about uh visualization that we should be able to integrate all of that and and then it we we should be able to surface important information to parents teachers and and students in in some simple charts that then allow allow you to uh, to to click through to dive deeper into areas of interest.
0: That's right. I mean, because in all things, and I certainly hope I represent this, and I believe Hill represents this, we need to put that educator, that student, and where appropriate, that parent into the center of our thinking. They need to come first. And then we have to surround them with a learning environment that is effective and efficient and easy to use. And we have to recognize that we are in a community within this industry where it's not about walled gardens, it's not going to be winner takes all, which I think are good things. It's that we're all going to earn our place in that curricular experience based on how well we offer uh, experiences that advance teaching and learning. And so in this highly fragmented ecosystem of players, the ability to easily mash up and interoperate has to be on the forefront if this investment in technology and education is really going to pay dividends. Imagine the airline industry without all agreeing to use Sabre as an example. It would be far worse than it is today, right? Um, We're seeing some of this, you know, obviously in healthcare, and there, the forcing function was the uh, reimbursement. Approach to reimbursement would, was, I would argue, one of the major drivers of healthcare data interoperability. And so for us in the education fund, it's got to be about freeing teachers and creating time for them to do what they do best and providing with students and where appropriate parent, parents with feedback and insights so that they can most effectively use their studying and learning time, and I, I am very optimistic. We're on the path to doing it, but there's a lot more work to be done.
3: Stephen, a couple of years ago, you bought N-Grade, arguably the best uh, grade book out there. That would suggest that you think uh, a super grade book is a uh, is an important tool.
0: We do in what the can large. You tell set... us about uh, yeah. So we do uh, in the why, large.
3: Why'd you buy N-Grade and? How does it fit into your strategy?
0: Yeah, no, really good question. And it's you have to think of it in the large sense of a grade book. So the reason we loved N-Grade is, yes, it has amazing grading workflows and grade visualizations. But the more attractive reason, too, was that it's it's viewed as an open uh, grading platform. And so from its uh, onset, N-Grade viewed the world as many actors, many players, and a great focus of their energy and continues to be a focus of our energy is making sure that it can take and support information from many providers. So it obviously implements IMS Global LTI. It has the ability to share rostering. Uh, We're now firing and receiving Caliper events. And what we love about it is if you decide to use it, it lives happily in a very heterogeneous environment of providers and to us that was the one of the very large attractions of it as an example of you know trying to walk the walk uh, of an ecosystem
3: so how would you describe McGraw's platform strategy today
0: it's about open it's about interoperable uh, and open meaning that We can imagine uh, learning experiences where we play a role and then some number of other providers play a role, but it all feels seamless. And as a teacher and a student, you don't feel like you're leaving context because you're not. Um, It's about being modular. So whether it's our courseware or whether it's our platform capabilities, take those elements that work well for you and turn everything off. And then take elements that you create or from others and weave them into it. And it's about doing that in a way that is easy to use, in a way that's engaging, and done well in a way that uh, creates more uh, effective and efficient learning outcomes. And so we've got many, many partners who we engage with, um, And our starting point is really understanding for our districts, for our institutions, you know, basically in the spirit of Clay Christensen's latest work, you know, what job can we help them solve? And when we can help them solve their educational needs, happy to do it, want to do it, want to do it with excellence, and where they think others can do it, we want them to be able to easily engage with others as well.
3: Stephen uh, McGraw also completed the acquisition of Alex, uh, a widely used adaptive uh, math program used in in secondary and in college. Is is adaptive an important part of your uh, personalized learning strategy?
0: It is because what we see in certain circumstances, and Alex is a great example, is that. If we can really, through curation and technology, because in our adaptive offerings, there's a tremendous amount of curation that happens in the spirit of creating very dynamic learning maps, right? So what we don't believe the technology does today is simply through algorithm and machine learning figure out what a course or knowledge domain is. We believe that our partners in the academy experts in the fields of mathematics, chemistry, and, and whatnot. You know, we need to engage with them to understand and decompose a domain into learning op- learning objectives, which are supported by learning objects, which have very um, complex relationships to each other. So for things like math and chemistry, Alex does that incredibly well. And when done well, it allows us to take students and so- avoid you know, the the gutters of boredom or being overwhelmed and keep them on the center of this road as a confident and engaged learner. Uh, we had been partnering, quite honestly, with Alex for about a decade, and shortly after I joined uh, McGraw-Hill and the Alex team, realized that if we went from partnership to being one of the same family, uh there was even more that we could do. And so by acquiring Alex, we've been able to take this understanding of how one does adaptive with quality, and this is all based on academic research. Um, we've been able to then take elements of that and generalize them in, in other uses, which has been fantastic. Uh, and so we've done some of this in uh, in medicine as well now at this point. And then we also have a... Another adaptive platform that we acquired from a company called Area 9, that's a more generalized adaptive platform, which we've got in about 1,400 other course areas, which is really built on a body of knowledge around um, confidence, around Ebbinghaus's forgetting curve, and is well-suited to the disciplines that it is used in. So the reason to invest in all of this is because it's all been demonstrated to really drive uh, student effectiveness, which is at the core of what we're trying to do.
3: Stephen, let's close by talking about uh, uh, one more meta trend, and this is the shift towards competency and credentialing. Uh, How do you see that changing, uh, particularly secondary and post-secondary learning over the next decade,
0: Yeah, I think it's actually a a powerful and positive dynamic. There's some core knowledge where ages and stages makes a whole lot of sense. There's some learners and some times in life where circumstances allow you and make sense to go and have a powerful two-year or four-year sort of focused learning experience. And there are many of us in the world who need to continue to acquire new skills in a just-in-time moment. I think the beauty of it is this is yes and. It's not either or. Um, I think there's a lot of power in competency-based learning to accelerate learners through a program or to allow a learner to really focus in the same time span or her energies in the areas of the program in which they truly need to still gain mastery. And at the same time, not subject them to reviewing concepts and ideas that they've previously mastered. And so I think competency allows that quite well. I think this notion of badging post-secondary or post-associates makes a whole lot of sense. You know, for example, I am more than happy to add people onto my team who may not have the specific traditional degree, but if by experience and by badge, for example, they can demonstrate that they're an expert in a certain approach of application development, well, I think that's just fine. And so I think these ideas create more opportunities to engage our society or the global society in learning experiences that create near-term benefit to them and to the society in general, and I think we should embrace them uh, for where they fit, which I'm pretty positive about them. And I think, again, those ideas plus well-done ed tech. what this all comes down to is putting a real focus on curation, on learning design, on content um, chunking, on integration, And all of those activities, regardless of the pedagogy or the program design uh, and the ability to create and understand the data that's around them, I think moves our art form forward in ways that are, are really powerful. With a final caveat, though, at the end of the day, I believe that learning and teaching are inherently social and that I think all of this is built on the foundation of having master teachers. And having folks in the academy who really can define and help us understand what it means to be competent in these ideas. And I think that foundation is necessary to build on top of and continues to be.
3: Uh, we'll we'll come back next year and and uh, talk more about that uh, topic of, of competence in uh, social-emotional learning. I think we'll see a lot of progress on that front in 2017. Uh, Stephen Laster, it's uh, been a pleasure to catch up with you. Uh, we appreciate um, your insights on, uh, on personalized learning and um, look forward to more in 2017.
0: Thank you, and it's always a pleasure to be with you and uh, to be continued. In 2017,
1: we're convinced that we will see a lot more project-based learning and definitely a focus on social-emotional development.
2: Megan, we're both looking forward to seeing more self-directed learning.
1: Absolutely. and and this shift in personalized learning, right? From adults and algorithms really determining what those pathways are to instead this this really deep and meaningful involvement of students um, as they look to identify what they need in order to reach their own specific goals.
2: I think this is the most interesting uh, learning design opportunity of our time combining, interest-based learning and standards-based learning so that kids can do more of what they're interested in. And as virtue of uh, these really packed learning experiences, they will also learn reading, writing, and math and also productive mindsets and the ability to collaborate.
1: And also how to show what they know. I mean, there's no reason that a student shouldn't graduate elementary, middle, or high school with a portfolio that showcases what they're proud of and, and highlights what they've learned and how they've learned it. And, you know, um, just really, really high-quality work products. So I'm excited for that for both kids and adults. Um,
2: and in addition to those great portfolios packed with artifacts, I think we'll see both students and teachers signaling their progress with micro-credentials.
1: Agree. I think 2017 has a lot to look forward to and we're excited to share all of that and more on gettingsmart.com. For the Getting Smart Podcast, this is Megan and Tom signing off.